On episode 201 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll hear mental game secrets from former top 30 player Micah Babel. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am still out of town, but I have uh, put together this episode for you and did an interview with Micah Babel, who played on the WTA Tour for 10 years uh, or thereabouts and was ranked number 27 in singles and number 45 in doubles. She's the founder of Micah Babel Coaching, where she focuses on mental skills training and tennis coaching for tennis players of all levels. Micah uh, is a great guest to have on the podcast, and I've had her on my summits as well. And we're going to talk about the mental game in particular, her career, and what she wishes she knew when she played pro tennis. And I think you'll really get a lot out of it. I'm recording this intro outdoors, so I do want to, you know, not have it go on for too long to minimize the background noise for this. But in any case, I really hope you enjoy this interview. And without further ado, here it is. Hey everybody, we're here with former professional tennis player and current coach Micah Babel and uh, it's really a pleasure to have Micah on. I've had her on a couple of my tennis summits now and she's uh, done a great job on them. So uh, it's really a pleasure to see you again, Micah. um, Thanks for so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, for sure. And as we spoke about before recording, you've been working with a lot of amateur tennis players and doing uh, analysis on their game. And uh, yeah, it's really great to have somebody like you with such great experiences uh, helping players like us. So really appreciate all your work in that realm. Um, But yeah, just uh, how's everything going in your world, uh, in your region, as far as tennis is concerned? I mean, we're, we've been pretty open the entire time. Um, the only restrictions that we had was a limited number of players on court. And I think indoors you had to play with a mask. Uh, but I'm teaching outside, uh, even in the winter, which nobody knows that you can do that in, in Denver. Um, and it's, I, to me, it was, I mean, I don't want to say great because obviously it's not a great situation, but tennis has boomed here. I mean, we have so many people coming back to tennis uh, trying it because it's the only thing that, you know, they felt okay doing. So I kind of benefited from that. Yeah. That, great to hear Micah. So, uh, I want to get into you know, how you got into the sport first off and, and to see your progression. Then we'll obviously get into some really great tips, uh, on, on the mental game and other things. So, um, first off, what, or who introduced you to the sport? Um, it was by default because both of my, my parents played and actually pretty well. And I mean, they just schlepped me to the court. Basically, that's, you know, that's kind of what happened when I was, I guess, yeah, still a baby. I mean, I do remember that people told me, it's like, oh, yeah, your parents just kind of brought you and then, you know, to the tennis club. And that's how I kind of got into it. Then when, you know, everybody around me was playing. 
Um, and it was not quite as, you know, as it is now where everything is very scheduled. So when you were small, younger, I mean, they, it was totally safe for my parents to leave me at the club, you know, and, and then older kids kind of babysit, I guess. And I saw what they were doing. And then, of course, what does a little kid want to do? They want to do what the older kids do. Um, and the story has it that I, um, I say I borrowed it. Somebody else said I stole the racket. Um, and just started playing and and the older kids kind of you know showed me how to do it so still i maintain to this day that i borrowed it i, I think i brought it back but and then my dad is a tennis coach so that kind of helped and then he saw that i'm doing okay i guess um and then i got my own racket so awesome so as far as um you know him being able to tell that you were that, that you had potential for the sport did he ever like tell you certain things uh in that regard I mean, when, when I started, I mean, that was like, I, w I was three or four and, and it was just like, somebody said, you know, it was like, oh, your daughter is, you know, on the wall there and just like taking it down. And he apparently just watched and uh, saw like, okay, yeah, she can get the ball, you know, back. Um, but it wasn't in any kind of way forced. It was just, okay, it's great that she likes it. And then, you know, I got into like little kids groups and only later, like maybe, eight, nine or something, when you start potentially playing the first tournaments or something, that's when, you know, other coaches also said like, Hey, she's pretty good because I'd started having pretty good technique. Um, and that's how it got started. I mean, it wasn't like any of those stories that you hear. Sometimes you were like drilled to be the next number one or something. It was just to have fun. Awesome, Micah. So, you know, it's obviously very important when you're young that you develop the proper technique because um, otherwise it'll be tough to fix in the future. So um, what do you attribute your your proper foundation of, of technique to? I mean, it was definitely my dad. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that I want to say differ a little bit from how it's being taught here. Um, it's very much at young age, you play with the right foundation, you get the right grips. Um, and I was very lucky that I also had another coach at my club who was actually one of the, you know, uh, train the trainers, um, you know, the equivalent, I guess, of the USPTA at my club. And so both of them were very, very, uh, you know, detailed in what they taught us. And it wasn't just me, it was a bunch of other kids too. Um, and you, you know, you try to get the fundamentals to kids that show promise until they're 10, 11, and then it's pretty much all tactical. I mean, you continue, of course, to work on your, your technical development, but the foundation should be laid very, very early. And that's a little bit of what I'm seeing here is, is different. I mean, we're, we're still getting 13, 14 year olds where I'm saying like, mm, that's probably going to limit you even at a fairly high level. Like if they're, you know, having extreme grips or, they don't know how to volley or whatever it is. So I think that maybe it was a different era. I'm not quite sure. I haven't, I haven't taught in Germany for the last 30 years. Uh, but I think that's, I'm, I'm remembering that differently. And from what I'm hearing from coaches that are still coaching in Germany or in Europe, um, they kind of have a different focus a little bit early on. Gotcha. Thanks for that, Micah. Um, great point. Um, so as far as like when you got serious into, uh, you know, tournaments and things like that, uh, at, at what age was that? And then what was your environment for training? Like, was it an academy or were you just, you know, playing with, with really good juniors or what was that like? Um, so 
I was a super late bloomer, um, very frustrating at the time because other kids got picked that I was beating. Um, but with my birthday, um, very late in the year, uh, 22nd of November, I was always at the cusp of that, you know, under 10, under 12, under 14, playing against older kids when you aged up. Um, so I never got picked for any competitions like national, international competitions, which was very frustrating back then because tell an 11, 12, 13 year old that, oh, you're not getting picked. Um, in retrospect, it was really good because I didn't get burned out. Um, I trained mostly um, at my home club, which was awesome because we had uh, a great group of people. Um, there were three, four other kids that made it to nationals. So I didn't have to go anywhere. Um, back then we didn't have any academies. Um, there are some now um, that uh, are based in Germany, but it's more of a, you know, you go from club to county and county to state and then maybe to national. So it's a little bit more of a, I'm going to call it centralized. It's not very private uh, like here. And uh, I didn't do too well, actually, to be honest, until I was 14. And then I started leapfrogging people because it had taken me a little longer to, you know, to perfect my or improve my technique. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it was perfect when I was 14, um, but it wasn't that I was training six hours a day. I was going full time to school. There's no homeschooling at that age um, in Germany. And again, that I think was a benefit for me because I don't think I've, I would have liked that. I'm, I'm a very social animal, if you will. And just focusing on tennis at that young age, I'm, I'm still not a big believer in that. Yeah, I totally agree with that uh, point there. Um, it can be too much for, especially for young adults. Um, it, you know, when you weren't picked, uh, did that foster any sort of extra drive or motivation or anything? Or did you, okay, how, how so? <laughs> yeah, you, hear me, you see me nodding. I mean, I was, yeah. um, because I had so many options technically, I mean, I was, when I was 13, I was working on a backhand slice on a backhand drive on a heavy topspin backhand, one-hander. Also, for whatever reason, it was in my mind that I need to play certain volley when I was five foot two. And of course, it didn't work too well in the beginning. Um, I had coaches tell me flat out, you're not ever going to make it anywhere. And that was, of course, a motivation. Um, and especially then when I turned pro at, at 16, people were looking at me going like, what the heck are you doing? Because at that point, there was, you know, Martina Hingis at age however old she was, 12 or whatever, winning the French Open Juniors, Jennifer Capriati, and I mean, all these like super young players. And here I am, 16, 17, not even ranked, deciding, okay, I'm, I'm going to turn pro. And I had two or three coaches say like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And so it was kind of nice to then tell them, at, you know, two, three years later. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. I'm curious, what were the reasons, if they gave you any, um, for why they thought that you would not make it? Because I hadn't had those early results. Um, I mean, we, uh, my uh, peer was Anka Huber. Um, I don't know if you remember her, but at age 15 or 16, she's 10 years, uh, 10 days, goodness, uh, 10 days younger than me. And at that point, uh, when I decided to turn pro, I think she was already top 80 or something. So it was that 
direct comparison. And everybody around me my age had already played uh, 10s and 25s and maybe qualified for WTA tournaments. And, you know, I had some, I played some higher level juniors and I played some uh, pro women's tournaments, prize money tournaments, and did really well. Um, and people were like, oh, you're not ready. You're you're not good enough. You know, you barely qualified for German national juniors. And there's so many weird reasons people gave me. And thank goodness my dad sheltered me from that. Um, my coaches at my club and my state didn't care about that. Um, very lucky in that way that I had people that said, like, don't don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know you. You know, they don't know that you're a late starter, like a late bloomer. And that's really what was true at the end, too. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that player who, and he played at a, my hometown tournament, City Open, um, and he retired, I think, a couple of years ago. But I think somewhere around the age of 40 he, it was when he finally reached the top 100. I wish I could remember his name. I'm going to look him up. But um, yeah, it's very interesting um, how people, you know, they fall into this comparison trap where, uh, you know, they don't take stock of what the person is, like where they are in their career and, and and things like that. And they just compare. And just because somebody is a super wonder kid, um, you know, they put the other person down and they think it's not possible. So uh, how, how are you able to um, kind of fight that actually like mentally? Because I'm sure it was kind of draining to be constantly compared and things like that. Again, I think... I I didn't necessarily hear it as much. I mean, I did hear it flat out from two or three of those coaches. Um, but because I think I had a really good base where I trained um, and I was still being a kid, really. I mean, half of the day I was training, half of the time I was still going to school. So to be perfectly honest, when, when I then turned pro, I didn't really know what the heck I got myself into. Um, so I think I was able to shrug it off a lot with like, yeah, okay, then I'll go play soccer with my friends. I don't care. Uh, it, it wasn't very one-dimensional at that time. So I think I hadn't put all my baskets, uh, all my eggs in that basket anyway. So um, it was easier. Yeah, it, it, it gnawed on me some, um, especially when people that I beat on a regular basis um, got sent to junior tournaments all over the place, you know, like uh, Australian Open Juniors or the Orange Bowl or something. Um, but then one or two years later, I played that stuff too. So it, it, I think at the moment it was a little rougher, but then, you know, you just figure out, okay, what else can I do? And since it wasn't like the one thing that I was doing, you know, I just went and played soccer with my friends or, I don't know, listened to Guns N' Roses or whatever the heck we were doing back then. Nice, rocking it, rocking it. Um, good to hear that. Uh, yeah, oh, and it was actually Victor Australia uh, Burgos. I probably butchered their, their pronunciation. That was the player I was thinking about. Um, okay, and then so in terms of um, uh, like your junior career, what was the highest that you, you reached and at what, what age was that? Um, I can't remember really what the ranking was. I remember that, that I was the top seed at Junior Wimbledon. Um, one year. So I must have been pretty high, but I think that was already based on my women's results. So that I think was when I was 17. Um, and that uh, Wimbledon campaign was not the most, <laughs> not the most successful. Cause I think I lost like 0 and 1 against Christy Bogart 
uh, I don't I don't know why on earth they would seed me one in Wimbledon when I really did not like grass at all. Um, but that was already at that point I already played mostly uh, adult tournaments, so it didn't mean that much to me. So, Micah, as far as um college like was that ever a thought you know to play uh college tennis or you know were you just definitely geared towards the pro game well at at that time i mean this was in 1991 is when i turned pro very very few people in germany even knew uh that you can play uh college the first time i was introduced to it was Literally, when Andy Brandy, coach of, uh, where was he, in Florida, uh, University of Florida, walked on my court, literally walked on my practice court at the Orange Bowl and said, like, hey, I'm Andy Brandy, you know, head coach at the University of Florida. Do you want to play for us? And I'm like, who are you? Get get off my court. Because I, I didn't know. Like, nobody knew. It's like, okay, you can go to school. And at that point, I had already turned pro, so I couldn't have even done it. Um, so yeah, it was never an option. I mean, I had left school after 10th grade, so I didn't even have, you know, my high school diploma, so I couldn't have gone to, uh, to university. We, we don't have collegiate athletics at home. So you just, you know, you go to regular school and then you go to university cause it's, uh, you know, it's free pretty much for the most part. Um, but yeah, that was my exposure to college tennis and only later, of course, and I learned like how how many of the players that made it into the top 50 had played college, like Lisa Raymond, uh, Sean Stafford, Meredith McGrath, and I mean, all those guys. That was my my group that I played with, and they had all played college. Very cool, very cool. In terms of getting your first uh, a WTA point, um, or points, I guess, uh, can you walk us through like where that was and then you know what that felt like? I mean, was it something where you you know, you knew you were going to get it, so whatever, or was it like super special for you? Um, take us back. No, it, it was super special. I mean, that was, I think I had gotten a wild card into a $10,000 tournament um, in Germany, and I did really well. I think I made it to the semis, I want to say, like last four, and beat a couple of players and on the way that I'd never never thought I'd have a chance against. And that was kind of like the first time when also the national coaches started to like perk up and go like, oh, okay. So we're not just like giving her a, a wild card, you know, to, I don't know, because we didn't find anybody better, but it's like, okay, here's somebody who can actually play. Um, and then I remember I did really well in the next two or three smaller tournaments. So that's how you got your first points. You had to get three I mean, three tournaments and get some points. That's how it was back then. I don't know if it's any different now. Um, but thankfully, I didn't have to play any of those, you know, open qualies with like 128 players. And you, you know, if you don't make it into the main draw, you don't get any points at all. And uh, so I was very lucky that I got the the wild card and, and I did really well very early with those wild cards. Very nice. And um, in terms of adjusting, um, you know, pro tour versus, you know, previous level. Uh, what was that like? Like, what, what was the differences that you saw at the pro level? Um, everybody is for themselves. Nobody gives you anything. Uh, you're regarded as the new one that could take a piece of the cake. 
you have a hard time finding practice partners because nobody knows you. Nobody wants to waste the time with you. Whereas at, you know, mostly juniors, the way we did it back then was you traveled with your, your state team, basically. So they were all my friends. You're in a group. Uh, you know, everybody's buddies, basically. And then you just hang out as a big pack um, at, I mean, WTA tournaments. Then again, it's just you. And then my dad traveled with me in the beginning. Um, and yeah, nobody gives you anything. Like nobody comes up and says like, hey, welcome to the WTA tour. It's great that you're here. It's more like the other way around. It's like, oh, crap. Uh, you know, somebody else that wants to take my money because that's what you do. I mean, you compete for a living there. So it was a little bit of a shark tank that you got thrown into. And I didn't expect that, to be honest. I, I don't know what I was thinking I was going to encounter. So that was a pretty rough wake up call pretty, pretty quickly. And it's, you know, the constant traveling is, is different too. Um, you don't get, get as many matches because you lose a lot early on. Um, whereas later than in, in juniors, I went, or, or the prize money tournaments that I played, um, or the smaller ITF tournaments, I got pretty deep into the draw. So, you know, I was playing three, four singles matches and then probably also two, three doubles matches. So you get a lot of matches in, whereas at the, on, you know, the first couple of tournaments that you play, you lose pretty early on. And then the next opportunity you play is only a week later. And that, that was an adjustment for sure. Yeah, definitely. That is interesting because, um, you know, when you mentioned the, the issue of getting uh, practice partners, um, you know, sometimes I see the, you know, professional players, they even practice with high level um, up and coming juniors or college players and things like that. So, I mean, do you, was it like just more cutthroat than usual on the WTA tour, do you think? Yeah, I know there, there's always this kind of myth that the women are cattier or whatever it is. Um, I'm sure it's the same on the men's tour. I think it's more the, uh, you know, now you have all these connections through sponsors. So, um, you know, some junior might be signed with Nike or Adidas or something. So those connections start and it's, uh, you know, they don't feel that they're necessarily losing anything if they practice with a great level junior. And now you see that more often on the w WTA tour as well. If, you know, like a junior comes through, let's say the Patrick Morotoglu Academy or whatever, all of a sudden you see, you know, 12 year old practice with Alice Cornet if she practices there. They hit with, you know, the 12 year old. So I think that's just something that changed over time a little bit. I wouldn't say that the women's tour is cattier. I think that's one of the things that I really don't like about um, stereotyping that stuff. I mean, it, it is, you compete for a living. Somebody that you might practice with might be your opponent the next day or a week later or something. They take your money away. That's, that's what it is. So people are protective of, I guess, their territory. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, just like with business as well. Um, so... What did you do to compensate, I guess, at least in the beginning, you know, when you didn't have practice partners, were you just practicing more with your coach or what did you do? Yeah, I mean, I definitely played a bunch with my uh, with my dad then. I mean, he was a very good player um, and then it got OK after a while. The nice thing was, uh, well, nobody will probably remember her, Judith uh, Wiesner, Wiesner, I guess Americans would pronounce her like a pretty high ranked Australian, like took pity on me, apparently. Um, 
and practice with me and it was fine. And then, you know, it, it kind of developed from there, but you know, you just seek out the other lower ranked players or the newer kids. Um, and then you practice with them. And it's, I think now people have gotten also a little, you know, a little, um, more creative of what they can do when they don't get as much court time. I mean, that definitely wasn't the case that there was so much more conditioning. I mean, you know, the conditioning we did was probably like run around the park like twice or something. Whereas now you, you see all that stuff that they do and I'm going like, Whoa, nobody did that when I was playing. Yeah. It's very different now uh, in terms of uh, technology and what, what we found out through science and things like that. So, um, okay. Pretty cool stuff so far. And then walk us through, because you obviously, as I mentioned in the, the intro uh, piece, that you've reached such a high level, um, you know, top 30 in singles, top 15 doubles. So um, talk us through your trajectory and, you know, when did things, I guess, quote unquote, click or maybe it was just a gradual thing. But how, how, how did the progression go for you on the tour? I think it was fairly... Well, gradual. I think I really did well playing. I mean, taking the opportunities that I was given at the smaller tournaments, and then you get enough points, you qualify for the next higher uh, round. And then um, I didn't have one super standout result. Really, I was pretty pretty even, Steven, throughout the season, which made it a lot less stressful because if you have one super result, then you think about defending that the entire year if you don't get points anywhere else. Um, so I did well at smaller tournaments, then the next level up, like at $50,000 tournaments, ITF still, um, and then started qualifying for bigger ones and one around here, one around there. So it was kind of gradual. There wasn't any big thing, but I think the click was really when I, when I started to see, okay, I'm, I'm qualifying very reliably. Um, and I can take sets off of people that are pretty significantly higher ranked than me. I mean, that was then really the, the time to say like, okay, I'm going to continue doing this because at, uh, when I turned pro, we had an agreement with the principal of my school that if I didn't make it into the top 100 in two years, in a year, in a year, I would have to come back to school because otherwise you couldn't come back to school in the following grade. So um, we had an agreement, okay, you have one year to get into the top 100. And I made that pretty, I mean, I don't want to say easily, but I, I did it fast enough that, okay, I could kiss school goodbye, which was kind of awesome at that point. <laughs> I really like this. This is a great thing that you mentioned. So, um, and a lot of like mental game questions came up uh, in my head. So uh, first off, like what uh, caused you to, to, make that you know uh, agreement uh, and then also like how confident were you when you said it and then um i guess maybe you can answer those and then i have another question <laughs> well so the uh, this sounds really terrible um the decision to turn pro was probably for a reason that i have not heard from anybody else so at the so in germany you can quit school after ninth grade and and tenth grade with different diplomas if you will um, and at the end of ninth grade, um, the principal called me and my parents um, into his office and said, like, well, we have complaints from your, your teachers because they can't grade you because you're never there. Um, because I played so many tournaments already. So, you know, one biology 
biology teacher, kind of like I walked into the class for the first time after like six weeks after the semester had started. And he goes, who are you? I'm like, one of your students. Uh, so they complained that they couldn't fairly grade me because I was just never there. So that's when the principal basically said like, okay, either you play tennis full time or you come back to school full time, but we can't continue doing this. So of course, as a 10 year, I mean, you know, as a 16 year old, I'm going like, okay, I'm playing tennis. Woohoo. Um, which potentially was the, not the best reason to turn pro. But at that point I had enough results that would justify it, but it was really the forcing issue, I guess. Um, and that's then pragmatic as he was, he said like, okay, just legally, you can't come back after, you know, staying out of school for longer than a year. So let's make this deal. What do you think is realistic? And that's more when my dad helped with, with that. Um, and I think I already had a, a ranking that was very promising and a good trajectory. So I think we said 100. Um, and, and I wasn't, I don't think that I was not confident in it. I think I, I did say, yeah, I can absolutely do this. Maybe also more because I didn't want to go back to school. I don't know, but it's, <laughs> I mean, it, it's definitely when I talk to other people, like what was the trigger that made you go pro? They tell me other things and nobody said because your principal kind of forced you to. So yeah, still pretty grateful to the dude. Yeah, thank you, dude. <laughs> um, that, that's, yep. that's pretty awesome. So I, do you remember what your ranking was when you said, you know, if I don't make it to 100, then I'll come back? I think it was in the lower 200s. I mean, I had already qualified for, because back then, I mean, literally, this is in 9091. I think there were only 600 or 800, very low number compared to now, who were ranked. So I think if you look at the rankings now, there's like 3,000 women ranked. They have a ranking. So I was already, I want to say, in the upper third of people who who played. So the trajectory was definitely there. I had already started qualifying, qualifying for bigger WTA tournaments. So I think that was the reason why we were pretty confident, okay, it's going to work. Yeah, and then, so did you ever think about that? Like when you were playing, did it give you added pressure? How did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, the minute basically, the first time it really dawned on me was the day that my, you know, schoolmates went back to school and I didn't go back to school and I was at a tournament somewhere. I was like, holy bananas, this is real now. Um, you know, and then you, the other thing is when you then turn pro, um, our state federation um, cut their support down a little bit, which they had been given me before. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, I have to pay a coach. I have to pay my own travel. I have to pay my coach's travel. I have to pay the hotel. I have to, you know, airfare and all that. And at that time, uh, you know, not that in the lower echelons, it's still great with prize money, but back then it was definitely not great. So yeah, it, it was a lot of pressure. I mean, I did realize that going to the States for the first time to play three, four tournaments, I was already out of pocket 10 grand basically for just traveling. And yeah, to, to kind of even break even, I would have had to qualify for every single tournament and win one round. And if you didn't, then it's like, ooh, where am I gonna get that money from to travel? Um, luckily at that time, uh, team tennis in Germany was super popular. Uh, Steffi had just totally created a boom. Boris Becker had created that boom. So team tennis played, I mean, paid pretty well. And I was very lucky that, that I had that buffer 
um, that definitely helped me a lot. But yeah, I mean, that's, it's in the, on the forefront of your mind all the time. I mean, if anybody tells you differently, then they must have a really great sponsor. Yeah, definitely tough financially. So if you could, can you take us back to a match that was very difficult for you on a mental level and then and then afterwards you, you learned something from that and took it uh, forward with you for future matches? Yeah, actually it was, um, I think, in San Antonio, one of my better qualifications, I want to say. Um, I had to play uh, qualies and I think just couldn't get a ball on the court. Um, it was windy. It was just very not great conditions. And I think at some point it was, okay, am I just going to dig in here or am I just going to let it go? Which, you know, if you're tired, third set, you know, you feel like you're playing absolutely, I mean, crummy. Um, and somehow it clicked because I think my, my opponent then yelled, oh, the freaking wind or whatever it was, something because she shanked a ball. And I'm like, oh, duh, she has to deal with that too. So it's just as tough for her as it is for me, um, which, yeah, it doesn't sound like it's like the super epiphany. But at that point, it did kind of click a little bit. Like there are some things that you can control and there's a lot of things that you just cannot control. And that, that obviously weather is is one, and that kind of kind of switched the lever a little bit. I want to say. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, in addition to that, is there anything on the mental game side that you learned or picked up after your career where you would have liked to have practiced <laughs> that more often while you were playing? Yeah, everything that I know now, pretty much everything that I know now. Um, the thing really when, when I played was that you just didn't talk about mental issues. I mean, it was so hugely stigmatized. And I think the perception was like, you're either born with mental skills or you're not. Um, and thankfully that has totally been debunked. I mean, if you're looking at Iga Swiatek right now, I mean, she has a sports psychologist traveling with her, which would have been unheard of back then. So I think the very first time I worked with somebody, um, I was still very hesitant because that to me meant I'm mentally weak, you know, and that's why I don't necessarily like calling it mentally tough because, you know, if you're not dealing with stuff too well, then that implies that you're mentally weak and who wants to tell anybody that, Ooh, I'm weak, you know, I, I need help with this. So maybe I wasn't necessarily as invested in it as I would be now. Now I would be jumping at on this. I mean, if I had had somebody like me helping me along, somebody who had gone through it, somebody who can relate when you're saying like, Hey, you feel like a total imposter first grand slam you play, you know, and then somebody can take, talk you down off it, you know, off the ledge, so to speak. Uh, I would have jumped on that. Um, but just, yeah, managing momentum, um, managing my own emotions that it's completely fine to feel, or normal, I should say, uh, to feel hopeless, helpless, uh, scared of stuff. I mean, all of these things that, you know, all tough people don't want to let you know about, but we all feel that um, or felt that. I talked to so many of my peers um, and they go, oh my God, you too? Uh, so we're having these like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, me too. I totally felt like I didn't belong my first Grand Slam that I played. 
So those things I would have loved to to know about and and how to you know regulate my own emotions, how to help myself uh, dealing with you know the the physical expressions of stress, you know, being tight, not being able to breathe, not being able to move, um, and you kind of put it together. But it would have been nice to really have a direction to work on that and, and have good instruction and have a game plan, just like you worked on your forehand and your backhand and not make a big deal out of it. It's, I think that's the biggest thing that I would have liked. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, so given that you didn't quite have those, I guess, tools, so to speak, um, I mean, you still did <laughs> really well. So, like, <laughs> how did you deal with it given that you didn't have these uh, advantages? Um, Were you just too good? I mean, you, you talk. Yeah, no, I've, I wish. Uh, I'm just thinking, I mean, a lot of times when I'm starting now working with players, I tell them, hey, I didn't know these things. I'm not standing here to tell you that I had all the answers. I didn't. And I'm regretting that because um, I think I could have been a lot better. I could have enjoyed my time on tour a lot more. Um, but it's, yeah, I think, I mean, you pieced it together. You, you learned, um, but it took way longer than it, to my mind, should have probably um, as compared to somebody, you know, you, who you're hiring and you work with them every week or whatever, you know, however people do it now. Um, I think the, the potential was a lot bigger. I, I mean, I know when I'm looking through my records, yep, that match didn't do well. Yep, that one lost it for three minutes, got broken, match done. Or, you know, just was mad at myself, terrible body language, whatever it was. I mean, I, I can pinpoint to that. I remember that. And that's really my biggest regret that, that I didn't have more help. Um, yeah, or that I guess sports psychology wasn't more accepted, including within myself. I mean, as I mentioned, I, I was kind of doubtful in the beginning. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that it's like, I don't know if this is the right word, but um, or if it's like too male skewed, but like almost like a bravado type of thing. Like, I guess it sounds like people just they just didn't want to talk about it. And if you did, then you were looked at as weak. So um, I'm glad that it's finally turned Absolutely. around, I think, for the most part. But uh, where do you think that comes from, actually, that that's type of thought? <laughs> I think it's really at some point it's, you know, you have like to my mind, you have four components. You have the technical, tactical, athletic and then the mental part. And if I'm comparing uh, tactical, technical, it's 
at this point sort of maxed out, if you will, athletic, athletically. I mean, if you compare how I train to what I'm seeing now, there's not that much more room to improve. I mean, yes, of course, in another 20 years, people will look back and go and like, wow, you know, cute what they did in 2021 compared to 2041 athletically. Um, but I think mental, that was the area where you could just get so much more of an edge because nobody worked on it. Um, and I think it was Martina uh, Navratilova who actually started working on it a lot because I uh, trained with her coaches for a while. And as opposed to what you saw about her on screen, right? You saw this very tough persona, uh, very, you know, super motivated, athletically fit like a, you know, I mean, crazy person. Um, but they told me that she is the most sensitive person on the planet, second guesses, self-doubt, unbelievable. Um, but she is working on it. And she was the first one. And I think that really, to my knowledge, to my knowledge, uh, that really worked on it. And then, you know, it started to be more of an accepted thing because like, hey, that's the only area where we can still make so many strides. And thank, thank goodness. Yeah, for sure. Thank goodness. Um, in terms of um, techniques or physical like cues or anything, um, I'm more, I was wondering if you could share with the audience like what things they could be doing to to help them with the mental aspect of their game. I think one of the the most valuable things um, is mindfulness practice. That is anybody can learn it. You can do it anywhere. You don't need a coach really. I mean, there's so many really good apps out, out there now, but it's really this, I know it sounds super cliche, the staying in the moment, realizing what's going on, not just with the situation as in, am I reading the cues properly that I'm giving, that I'm getting from my opponent? Meaning, am I seeing that they're, you know, a stroke is weaker or they don't move in a certain way as, as well. Um, as well as like, where am I emotionally? Am I self-destructing right now? What's my, my self-talk? Um, and then lastly, realizing, okay, what are the tools that I have? Um, hopefully, if you had some mental skills training, but a lot of people don't even realize that they're not helping themselves, either with their thoughts, with their body language. And mindfulness is, I mean, something that helps me in my, my normal life. Um, I'm way less reactive. Um, it's something that I teach to, to clients. And if you listen to Novak Djokovic, Bianca Andreescu, I mean, Simona Halep, they're all doing it now. And it's, you know, if they're doing it and other sports too, I mean, LeBron James, uh, you know, the Seattle Seahawks, the Michigan football team. I mean, there's, there's so much proof for it, for the benefits. That's the one and only thing. If you don't know anything else, if you don't want to do anything else, do that because it's, do I want to say life changing? It would have been career changing for me. Let's put it this way. Gotcha, Micah. And then what does that look like uh, in practice? Is that like, are, are you writing things down? Are you meditating? Are you, you know, is it a mix? Like what are some, some tangible things there that we can do? So right now, basically when I'm working with somebody who quote unquote, should know how to do that. Um, I'm sometimes still facilitating with, um, hey, take a breather, you know, or I'm just holding up my hand with one player. I'm just like having to hold up my hand when I see signs of stress, like rushing, uh, you know, dumb shot selection, stuff that I'm not used to from a usually tactically sound player. 
And then most of the time, you know, that player goes like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting that I have, you know, a tool here. And that's when you're literally milking your 20 seconds, take a couple of really deep breaths. Ideally, that triggers, you know, your, um, the automatic responses that you train off cord, right? If I'm deep breathing, then I'm paying attention to my breath. Um, I'm not getting too worried about what other people think. I'm not, uh, you know, paying attention to what my mind tells me because most of the time my mind will tell me that I'm terrible because that's just what our mind does. Um, but that's what you can do in practices. Um, you know, if you work on this kind of stuff, tell your coach, Hey, I'm working on this. So please don't feed the next ball right away. When I'm giving you whatever sign it is, you know, let's talk about what can I give you as a, as a cue that you need to give me a couple of seconds or ideal would of course be that the, the coach can help. Um, but if I work with somebody who's not with me on court, I always ask them, hey, tell your coach, this is what you're working with. Ask them to give you that time because obviously it also benefits the coach because it makes the lesson a lot more enjoyable. Um, but it's this, this just putting a stop sign up basically mentally for yourself that, hey, things are going not great right now. Here's what I can do. And I think one very good cue that I like is when you're losing two points really quickly when you're double faulting and then you're, you know, they're blasting a return or something. That's two points. Check in with yourself. Okay, am I still good with myself? What are my physical signs? Is my breathing increased? Is my heart rate increasing? Am I getting tight? Um, and of course you don't have that much time, but when you practice it, it becomes a habit. And that's why it's so, so powerful because your brain just accepts that as a habit. And you know, you're, you're getting really good at that at some point, but again, it takes dedication. It takes very uh, focused practice off court, which not too many players, unfortunately, are, are willing to put in. Yeah, that's a huge difference maker. So we've talked about, um, and, you know, you've shared a lot of great things that we can do. Um, what are some things that we should avoid or omit uh, on the mental game side? Um, cracking rackets thrown rackets, totally useless. I'm still getting a congratulatory note every year from Wilson that they're now making a profit because I, I don't know how many rackets I broke. It's the dumbest thing. I wish I'd never done it. It doesn't do anything. Um, I think the one thing, avoid thinking that being stressed is not normal except that that's what's going to happen. Even good players, world-class players, doesn't matter what sport they play, they will have negative thoughts. They just have learned to deal with them differently. So that's the one thing really don't try not to beat yourself up for being negative. Um, it's normal. Ideally, then you have tools to deal with it. Um, the, the one thing really as coaches that I don't like to hear is, stay more positive, but we don't give them the how. Like, don't get angry. Okay, so what I'm doing right now is I'm just compounding that that player feels like an idiot because they don't have the tools to do it. So I'm just hammering that into them even more instead of saying, ideally, if you have the tools to give them, it's like, hey, I recognize that you are upset after throwing the racket or whatever they do and are yelling. Um, totally normal, take a deep breath, let's talk about it, here's what you can do. 
And, and that's really the biggest thing um, to accept that it's going to happen. There's no way it's not going to happen unless you had some kind of something's not quite right in your brain, because that's just how we are as humans. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Uh, so if you we kind of talked about the mental game side, but just an overall question um, uh, in terms of like if you could go back um, and to give yourself advice on any 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 aspect at all, like from from now to like when you were starting as a pro or while you were playing, like what what advice would you give yourself? I think just what I said, it's like, expect that it's going to, that you're going to be negative. Um, expect that you're going to have times where you actually really dislike tennis. Um, it's absolutely normal. Again, something that I talked to my peers about, and it's, it was stunning to me how many of us actually have this love hate relationship with tennis. I mean, it enabled all of us to do so many great things, but it brought all of us so many, unenjoyable memories or unenjoyable moments. So I think just saying like, hey, 17-year-old Micah, expect and know that it's going to be rough. Expect that you're going to hate it at some points. And again, here are the things that you then have to do or that you you know can do to do it, uh, to, to fix it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Great. Great advice. So I want to go to your last match and um, just kind of, um, you know, to walk us through, like, you know, when when was your last match, where and, you know, the circumstances and how it felt and all that. Uh, last match, I think, was either in Bratislava um, in 2020 or uh, no, not 2020, um, 2000. Um, or in 1999, I think that either Bratislava or Essen in Germany, actually. That was when I was, I mean, I had just coming back from yet another shoulder injury, and then I had uh, plantar fasciitis, and it was all, I mean, basically it was already decided that this is going to be the last, and it felt terrible. I mean, the only reason I played it, honestly, was to, uh, you know, finish it out a whole year. I mean, it was at the end of the season. I didn't want to finish like just mid-year somehow. Um, it was not very enjoyable because I knew that I'm not going to be 100% because I couldn't have, I mean, I couldn't train before the way that I wanted to with my shoulder and my foot and whatnot. You know, and then the, the weird thing was actually, I think it was Essen. There was another young player coming up and somebody said like, hey, you got to take a look at her. That's the new, you know, superstar. Um, it was Kim Kleister's. And I think she, I think maybe she had already qualified or, or had gotten a wild card. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so I'm watching her and she's this super strong, super athletic human being. Here I am not able to basically train or walk. And I'm like, okay, time to retire. This is it. So I, I blame Kim Kleisters, actually. She, she doesn't know that, but yeah, it, it was Kim. Well, well, we'll try to uh, get the that. message to yeah. her somehow. Um, but yeah, I, I stick with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay, all right. So uh, you know, not the most graceful, I guess, because of injuries. It makes sense. Um, so then, how long was it after you retired that you decided that you wanted to get into coaching? And then, what did you do? 
So the, the reason really I got into coaching was, um, as I said, uh, we don't have collegiate athletics at, at home. So one of the options would have been, I mean, for me, always education was a really, really important thing. Um, so I could have gone to university at home, but I still felt so connected with, with tennis that I didn't want to just say like, okay, I'm done now. Um, so at that point then, uh, you know, a lot of people had gone and played college in America. And so a very good friend of mine said like, hey, this is an option. You could, you know, go to university there and uh, coach because, you know, they have, you know, uh, these options. So I just, you know, thought about that and I was like, okay, I'll do that. Um, applied totally randomly, not again, knowing what I was doing um, and got an offer from Tulane to get a uh, what, grad assistant position basically they would pay my full scholarship and you know I'd be the assistant coach and that really after a couple of months so I felt wow okay these you know young women are really listening they're really trying to work on stuff I, I seem to have a pretty good way with you know they probably would tell you totally differently now if you asked them but <laughs> uh, you know I seem to have a pretty good way with relating stuff to them, and it also very much, very quickly, uh, was clear that it's not at, about tennis at all that much. It's about like connecting to the human, um, figuring out okay, what are their limits that day, either physically, mentally, whatever. I mean, they're going to school full time, and I seem to have a pretty good connection with them. And it's like, huh, this is really fun. Um, so that's kind of, again, sort of by default, I got into it. And then, you know, I transferred to Vanderbilt to a higher school or higher ranked, uh, worked with players that are really, really good. And yeah, that's how I got stuck, I guess. Very nice. Stuck in a great profession. So um, and then when did you develop uh, Micah Babel coaching? I mean, it's always been in the back of my mind, sort of, um, but I was always very happy to just, okay, I'm at a, either at a club or I'm at a university. At some point, I didn't want to travel anymore, so that's when I quit college. Um, and, you know, I was just at a club in either Atlanta or here, and then I'm going like, huh, I just know too much about the sport, especially from a perspective of a female, that I should limit myself. And I think really the, the penny dropped I do want to say last year, I mean, starting to get on YouTube and all that kind of stuff in the lockdown and how can I still provide, you know, value to my clients. I did some workouts, you know, in front of the garage and people really liked it. You know, um, I'm like, whoa, okay. I didn't expect that. And then a bunch of my clients said like, Hey, you know, so much about this. I'm watching all these other coaches do this and you know, either equal or more. And it's really cool to hear it from somebody who was, you know, top 30 and who also cares about as little people, you know, not just the high performance players. So that's kind of how I figured, all right, let's do it. And yep. And then actually Emma Doyle, thank you, Emma, um, put me in touch with you. So that was a little earlier, uh, two years ago. So that was, I think also the first taste of what's, what's possible online. Yeah, Emma's fantastic. I've uh, interviewed her multiple times and had her on my summit. Um, so yeah, really, really glad that we connected uh, through her. Um, and then what do you specialize in? Uh, you know, it, it, I guess like what types of students um, are you are you looking to impact? 
in anybody and everybody who wants to learn. Don't care what your level is. Um, I actually don't like working with high performance juniors. Um, it's too, yeah, I, I can't deal with the parents. I don't want to deal with the parents. Um, I'm having a hard time uh, making people understand that some of the ideas that they have are not very good ideas. And um, I think I'll leave it at that. That's one of the biggest issues working with juniors. Um, I love working with, with adults who know what their money goes to. They're, they're spending it because they want to spend it, um, not because somebody forces them to be there. And I have clients here in, in Denver, 2-5, beginners. Uh, sweet spot seems to be 4045 USDA. Um, I have some really high-level adults. They all play college. Um, obviously, they're fun, but it, anybody who wants to learn, don't care. Tennis is such a great sport. You can play it, I mean, any sport, I mean, any level, any, any age. So pretty wide field. Very cool. Um, there are quite a few coaches listening to the podcast. So any tips for them, um, any pet peeves, anything like that uh, for them uh, that they may want to avoid based on what you've seen? Ooh, and that's when I need to be really careful about what I say. Um, so I think the perspective that I can put in, that I can bring in is from a, from a female perspective. Um, I do coach men and women slightly different. Um, I definitely very much dislike the, oh, the ladies, or even more disrespectfully, oh, the housewives. Um, to me, that's not understanding how women get into sport. Um, a lot of players that I have uh, started tennis when they were uh, established having a family because they were the first to give up you know, any kind of leisure stuff having a family. Uh, they may have played in high school, then they you know, got married, whatever, got a job, and the first thing that they are asked to do is give up sports. Um, so to just dismiss them as, oh, the three, five ladies or the housewives or whatever, um, or I'm having my morning ladies, this obviously mostly coming from males, is that's definitely a pet peeve of mine because you do not realize that there's not equal opportunities for women to play as it is or as they are for men. I mean, I cannot tell you how many of the clients that I have tell me, oh yeah, I was made to watch my brother play all these sports, but I was not encouraged to play sports. And tennis is the first time, uh, you know, they, they get competitive and then they may not necessarily have the tools yet when they compete, right? So that's when we get into the caddy women. Um, if you don't understand that, then obviously you, you dismiss that. And that's something that I really don't like in our profession. I think a lot is still that as a coach, we think we, just because we're a better tennis player, we're somehow superior. I mean, I always liken that to me, um, you know, not being able, uh, and then not being able to, to really help somebody who's newer to the sport. Um, I had a very, very humbling experience two, three years ago when I started doing, uh, Krav Maga and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So I'm walking into the, the gym and I'm thinking like, hey, here I am, former you know, pro athlete and I know what I'm doing athletically. After about 
10 minutes, literally the coach goes like, didn't you tell me you were a world-class tennis player? Shouldn't you have like body control? And I didn't because it's a completely new sport. So the terminology is different. The, the you know, movements are different. And so just because I'm really good at tennis doesn't mean that everybody that I'm seeing on court has the same ability. So I have to find a way to break it down for somebody completely new. And I think a lot of times that's not what we're doing. And I think we're losing a lot of people because of that, because we're expecting um, that people should have these abilities and they don't. And unfortunately, especially women, because we just have never been given the same opportunities to develop athletically. So getting off my soapbox now, but that's yeah, my two cents to uh, what I would like to have changed in our profession a little bit. Well, thank you. Those are some great points that you expressed for us to uh, consider. Um, in terms of, um, you know, I'm not sure if you're a voracious reader or not, but are there three books that you would gift a friend to help them improve their tennis game? Um, hmm. I do have one book, which is uh, The Art of Doubles. Uh, Pat, somebody, Gilks, I don't know. I don't know what her last. To me, it is absolutely fantastic. Um, Coach McDonald at Vanderbilt actually introduced me to it, and I, we're, we've used her uh, you know, terminology all the time, and it was fantastic for you know, our young women to just be able to, to react to just a Q word because we had worked on that. So that's just doubles play, very... Um, simple, I mean, in a very accessible way explained. Um, I think I did like Andrea Agassi's uh, biography just because he explained some of the struggles that I, obviously never at that level, um, but he had the same love-hate relationship that a lot of us had. So it wasn't very, you know, mind-blowing. Well, it was mind-blowing to hear that somebody that high had those uh, thoughts. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's it. I mean, there was one, uh, little booklet in, in German that had junior practice, but that's like 40 years old. So I, I don't know if you would get that, <laughs> like all kinds of fun exercises to do with kids that were just like athletic development. Um, and I think it was very unique at that time, but yeah, I, I don't think that's still out there. Cool. Cool. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, might be hard for us to read there. Um, are there any other, you know, any resources or any other, um, yeah, any other resources that you might um, recommend or websites or anything to uh, to get information? Um, I, running the risk that I'm, I should ask for commission. Um, I like Headspace. It's an app. It teaches you mindfulness. Um, super easy. Anything, anything that teaches you mindfulness. If that's the only thing that I can, ex I mean, that I can recommend for anyone, that's it. Love it. Yeah, I, I used to use Headspace a lot. The only reason why I switched to Calm is because I, there was some like crazy discount on it. So I, I like Calm yeah. as well. It's, Calm it's is, is very similar. Yeah, absolutely similar. I mean, it's mindfulness is one thing. I mean, there's different ways to teach it with different terminology, but the end result is the same. Yeah. Um, do you do any like any journaling or anything, anything like that? Did you re recommend it for players? I absolutely certainly do. I mean, I don't do it for tennis, obviously, because I'm not playing any anymore. But um, I'm 
I could be more consistent with my gratitude practice, just three things that I'm grateful for. Uh, usually puts me in a much better place at night. I like that. Um, but for players, I absolutely recommend journaling about your your practices. Do it. I mean, usually when I'm, I'm working with somebody, it's start out with before you practice. What are the goals that you're setting? And then go back and, and grade yourself. How did I do on my uh, on my goals? Like, what did I put in? What are the steps that I put into to reach that today? Um, so you're becoming a little bit more process oriented. Um, and to me, it's also a fantastic tool to gain confidence because if you have it black on white or blue on white, whatever, I, I still like handwriting. Um, you see that your brain is not dismissing, you know, your gains that you made because you have it black on white because we're so good at just like, you know, sweeping little gains or little wins under the rug and dismissing them. It's like, oh, that doesn't really count. Um, every little thing does count. I mean, if it's okay, I got five slice backhands in the court today. That's what I was working on. Then that counts as a win. Um, and that's what I have to feed my brain that way. And if I see black and white, then okay, it, it really happened. Yeah. So that's why I really like journaling. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Definitely love it. And like you said, um, whenever I uh, write what I'm grateful for, then uh, things instantly improve. Um, I tell myself that on the court too. Sometimes if I'm having a rough session, just tell myself, you know, how lucky I am to be able to play, you know, and that, that helps a lot. <laughs> so. For instance, yep, I can, you know, my office is my tennis court and how lucky I am, uh, you know, am I that I can do that? I mean, sometimes, yeah, not that great, but I'm still fantastic, you know, better than sitting somewhere in an office. Yeah, for sure. Um, awesome, Micah. So where can people go to to follow you? Well, let me know of all the channels so we can check them out. So I definitely have my YouTube channel. I'm just going to toot my own horn there. Just recently started it. Um, I think hopefully today, if anyone subscribes, I'm getting to 500 followers. I know this is not like earth shattering yet, but for only, I think having it done seriously for three months, that's not too shabby. Um, Facebook, Instagram, um, I think at Coach Micah Babel or Micah Babel, just Google it. Uh, you should be able to find me. Awesome. Very good. Just making notes here. <laughs> um, and to close it off, what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? Okay. Are you ready for really touchy feely? Yes. Cause that, that's, that's another thing that is very spoken uh, of very little, uh, be kind to yourself. I, I talk, um, I'm always thinking I, you could have not bleeped out enough of it. Um, it was so abusive. And if you can find a way to just be kinder with yourself, just be gentler and just accepting, okay, this is going to happen. No, you're not terrible. Um, definitely you're not a terrible being because you can't get a foreign in the court. And this is my advice to juniors a lot more. So, because they multiply all this stuff a lot more. Um, if you can be kinder to yourself, A, you play better, but you make tennis so much more enjoyable. Yeah, I love that. Um, what One thing that stuck with me is that, uh, I forgot who it was, but they said that, um, you know, you should treat yourself like you would uh, a good friend, you know, like 
it's funny you never talk to your friend like horribly like you would to yourself usually oh yeah um, and and that yeah. is you'd be amazed how many times i actually use that method to i mean coax some kindness out of someone because they're not able to do it for themselves and me included i mean i'm i'm the first one uh to say that i wasn't very kind to myself but it the the tool that you use is okay write this down as if a friend came to you or you're coaching right i mean like in college for instance you're allowed to have you know a player on on the court and we have that a lot of times because those two you know had a good connection or something and you would hear what they're able to to say to that other person how kind and compassionate and patient and i mean fantastic emotional support because that's what you do out there as a coach but then you hear them talk to themselves you go like holy bananas um so that's an exercise you can do just you know your imaginary friend tell them they they come to you and they go like hey you know mike i i can't get a ball in the court i feel horrible okay what what would i tell that friend and then maybe gradually even you know change pronouns and talk to you yourself directly but that is a journey for a lot of people yeah it's not easy but you got to take the first step and go from there uh Micah, well thanks so much for coming on to the podcast yep. it's a pleasure speaking with you again i'm sure we'll uh connect again soon and do something similar but uh yeah wish you all the best and everybody definitely check out uh, all the links on the show notes page that we'll mention including micahbabble.com and her um fantastic uh, other channels so uh thank you micah uh, all the best to you and have an awesome day awesome thank you all right i really hope you enjoyed this interview with micah babble micah thanks so much for coming on to the show and sharing your knowledge about the mental game and also entertaining us with how you came up uh, on the pro tour and also your coaching uh, adventures right now so i uh, really enjoyed the interview and if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoy the tennis files podcast i really would appreciate it so much if you would leave a review for the show and you can do that in your podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show i also have a quote of the day for you and this one is by jonathan safran foer hope i pronounced that correctly but Jonathan said, you cannot protect yourself from sadness without protecting yourself from happiness. Very deep quote there. So that is all for this episode. Really hope you enjoyed the interview again and uh, try and write down a couple of points that you took from the show and try to implement it. Uh, and with that, uh, I really enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening. And I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis files podcast take care thanks for listening to the tennis files podcast for more tips to help you improve your tennis game visit tennisfiles.com